So the last time that we were together in the book of Revelation, we were studying chapter 21, verses 9 through 27. This is the penultimate sermon here. We've got two weeks left. Slightly sad about it, but not that sad. I've really loved it, but the preparation for these sermons, uh, it's definitely heavy stuff. So uh, I look forward to a little bit of a break in that, if I'm being honest with you. But the preaching of Revelation, like once the work is done, uh, kind of in the lab, if you will, and I'm up here able to preach it, it's just been such a joy. So that part I am definitely sad about. Uh, But in chapter 21, 9 through 27, We saw incredible promises made to the bride of Jesus through the picture of the New Jerusalem. We saw how the bride of Christ is the people of God, as seen in the names of the 12 apostles on the foundation of the city and the 12 gates with the names of the 12 sons of the tribes of Israel inscribed upon them. The bride of Christ is the people of God who are perfected by God, coming down from above, presented without spot or wrinkle or blemish. The bride of Christ reflects the pure beauty of God with descriptions of glory and light and jewels, human language being stretched to its limits by the Apostle John with uh, descriptions like, you know, glass or uh, gold that is like uh, clear glass. Uh, the bride of Christ is protected by God with the thick walls and the open gates and the angels located at each gate. And the bride of Christ is in the presence of God. The whole city being a temple. And we continue tonight seeing more symbolic imagery, more arrows pointing us to the wonderful eternity that is in store for God's people who dwell on the new earth. And tonight we have three more observations concerning the bride of Jesus, concerning the new Jerusalem. We will see that the bride of Christ has the life of God, The bride of Christ has the liberation of God, and the bride of Christ has the light of God. And throughout, we're going to see that these are already promises, but not yet promises. Uh, There's a sense in which these promises are absolutely for the future, and that's where we're going to see them come to their full fruition, but they also speak to spiritual realities that are in the here and now. These are graces that we know in part, and eventually we will know in full, and I hope that will encourage you tonight as we go through our study. So Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, I'll read our text. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp. Or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The whole book of Revelation has been a book of camera angles. Seven cycles showing us seven different angles of the way things have been, the way things are, the way things ultimately will be in the end. And here in the seventh and final cycle, we have one more camera angle of the bride of Jesus 
And we see two key elements. The river of the water of life in verse 1. Chapter 22, the tree of life in verse 2. And as with the, the rest of the, the pictures and the symbols in Revelation, there's a few places that we can go in the Old Testament to see the biblical background of these symbols. But there's no place that's more important for us than Ezekiel 47. And before I get to Ezekiel 47, since we have a little bit more time tonight because we're only dealing with uh, verses 1 through 5, I want to take the opportunity to really focus on what's happening in Ezekiel 40 through 48 in general. We barely touched on it when we were together in the text a couple of weeks ago. So I I want to deep dive here for a second because it really enriches our understanding of Revelation 22. Ezekiel was written by the prophet Ezekiel during the Babylonian exile. Ezekiel is a prophecy book that explains how God's people ended up under the Lord's discipline in exile, and at the same time, it gives them the hope of a restoration that is to come in the future, a a hope that God's people are not going to be in exile forever. In Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel sees something that is tragic, something that is very sad. He sees the glory of God depart from the temple. Ezekiel 10 verse 18, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And in Ezekiel 16, you find out why the glory of God left the temple. Ezekiel 16 verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. Strong, strong language from Ezekiel to explain spiritual adultery, and honestly, it gets a lot stronger than that. If you read chapter 23, which I'm not going to read tonight, if you read it out loud, just you might not want to have the kids in the room, okay, until you're ready to explain some words, because the language is vivid, and it is God explaining how he sees the spiritual adultery of his people, how they have committed spiritual adultery with their idolatry. People of Israel wondered, is all hope lost? In chapter 33, verse 10, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? But in Ezekiel 36 comes this glorious new covenant promise of regeneration, of spiritual life, the promise of a new heart, the promise of a new relationship with God. 36, starting in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is a prophecy about new covenant regeneration that is going to come to the people of God who trust in Jesus Christ. The very next chapter 
Ezekiel sees a vision of New Testament resurrection in the valley of dry bones. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And so that gets us to chapters 40 through 48, where there is this vision of a new temple, vision of a restored city, a restored nation. In chapters 40 through 42, there are detailed measurements of this temple. Ezekiel 40, the outer courts, the inner courts, the north and south gates, they're all measured. The priestly chambers are measured. The vestibule are measured, just like we see the temple in Revelation 21 being measured. Ezekiel 41, the most holy place is measured, just like the New Jerusalem. It is a cube. Ezekiel 42, various temple chambers are measured. Now listen, there are many who believe this is a literal temple that has yet to be built. I have a disagreement there. Those are still good brothers and sisters. Many of you in this church believe that. And you may completely disagree with me tonight. And I hope that we still love one another when we're said and done. There's no reason for us not to. But there are many who argue that this is a temple that must be built before the return of Jesus. But as you read Ezekiel 43, I think the literal interpretation runs into a major wall. The glory of God fills the temple, and there is an altar, and there are sacrifices required. So in verse 21, you shall also take the bull of the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place belonging to the temple outside the sacred area. Now here's the problem with there being sacrifices required in a new literal temple in the New Testament era on the other side of Jesus' cross. It's that the New Testament says this won't happen. So in Hebrews 10.14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering. Then it goes on in verses 17 and 18. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why? Because Jesus has shed his blood. And believers enter into the holy place by his blood. And when he gave his life as the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, it ended the sacrificial system. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And so I don't think what we're seeing in Ezekiel 43 is a call to reinstitute a sacrificial system in a literal temple after Jesus has already offered up his body as the final sacrifice. Instead, we are seeing symbolic language that is pointing us toward the final sacrifice of Jesus, which opens the way for God's people to be the temple of God forever. Matthew Henry, in commenting on this, he said, We are not now to offer any atoning sacrifices, for by one offering Christ has perfected forever those that are sanctified. But the sprinkling of his blood is needful in all our approaches to God the Father. Our best services can be accepted only as sprinkled with the blood which cleanses from all sin. And we see this playing out in Ezekiel 44. The east gate is shut. And will remain shut. And the only one able to go in is who? It's this prince. 
And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it, therefore it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. This prince is Jesus. He's the only one who can enter And anyone who desires to be a part of this temple must go in by the way of him and the sacrifice that he made, which is foretold in chapter 43. In chapters 45 and 46, the land is marked off for the temple and offerings and festivals are described. There's guidelines for how everyone must conduct themselves in worship. And in all of this symbolic language, Ezekiel is speaking in the language and in the customs of the time in which he wrote, showing God's people who are in exile, listen, you're not going to be in exile forever. Far from it. You will be the very temple of God. So the many chambers of chapter 42 will be fulfilled in the Father's house, where Jesus says there are many rooms. The sacrifices of chapter 43 are fulfilled in the atoning work of the Son, The prince of chapter 44 reminds us there's only one way to fellowship with God, and that is through the Son. The feasts of chapter 45 remind us that Christ is our Passover lamb, and that the entire Christian life we live is like a worshipful feast kept in spirit and in truth. The duties of worship in chapter 46, they remind us that we live our lives as an offering to God as priests in his kingdom and of his temple. These were mysteries of the gospel embedded in Ezekiel's prophecy, revealed to us in the very new covenant that he wrote about in chapter 36. And all this gets us up to chapter 47, where we have a clear parallel to Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Let me read these passages side by side. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, let's consider Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 3. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from behold the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Keep going in verses 7 and 8. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. These parallels between Revelation 22 and Ezekiel 47 are undeniable. So once again, we do not have Ezekiel telling us of a literal temple, but using prophetic language to give us a picture of the New Testament church, the life she has now, 
and the life that she will have in the age to come. So number one tonight, the bride of Christ has the life of God. The bride of Christ has the life of God. Let's take these images one at a time. You have the river of the water of life. In Ezekiel's vision, he sees water flowing from the part of the temple that faces the east. As the angel measures the river's depths, it goes from being ankle deep to getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. And he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. And he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And as it flows into the Dead Sea, it turns the salt water into fresh water, allowing the fish and living creatures to thrive. There is no river like this in Israel, which again tells us that this is figurative, symbolic language. Here's Dennis Johnson explaining it. The river's unusual features show the figurative or symbolic form in which Ezekiel's vision is given. From the presence of God in the last days will flow life-giving water. And this vision from Ezekiel is coming to its ultimate fruition in Revelation 22. The life of God flows from the throne of God and the Lamb to the people of God and will do so for all of eternity. Now, in the ancient world, when an enemy would besiege a city, one of the things they would try to do is cut off the water supply that was coming into the city from the outside. And that would force the people inside the city to come outside of the walls, where they would be laid to the sword, or they would be taken for prisoners and slaves. However, here in Revelation 22, with all of the enemies of God vanquished, there is no threat of this in the new Jerusalem. His people will have the water of his eternal life forever. In fact, you'll notice the water doesn't even come into the city from the outside. It flows from the throne of God outward, nourishing every citizen within the walls. Psalm 87 verse 7, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. All our fountains are in the Lord our God, and they will be forever and ever. The second image we get is the tree of life in verse 2. If the river of the water of life is a reference to Ezekiel 47, 1-5, then the tree of life is a reference to Ezekiel 47, 7 and 8. But the imagery of Ezekiel 47 is actually a reference back to a place even further in the Bible, all the way to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden. The tree of life, if you've read Genesis chapter 2, is in the middle of the garden. Genesis 2 verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After Adam and Eve sinned, they're ousted from God's paradise, keeping them from eating from the tree of life in their fallen state. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Eden was really the first temple on the earth. It was a paradise where God met with man. And in that paradise, he charged Adam to work and to keep the garden the way that a priest would work and keep the temple. But we know Adam failed. And now the east gate is guarded, so Adam cannot enter in. Keep in mind, by the way, Ezekiel 47, the east gate shut, but who can go in? The prince, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's able to enter in because unlike the first Adam, the second Adam did not break covenant with God. How rich is God's word? And now in Revelation 22, the gates of the city are open and those who have washed their robes in the righteous blood of the prince of the second Adam are able to eat from the tree of life forever. No more being ousted from paradise. They're in paradise and they're eating from the tree. Revelation 22 verse 14, we'll see this when we study the prologue, or the epilogue I should say next week. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. The tree of life is depicted as producing 12 types of fruit, a harvest for each month. But 12 is not just how many months there are in a calendar year. We know it's also the number that God has used throughout the book of Revelation to remind us of his people. The number 12 has been all over the descriptions of the New Jerusalem, and here it is again, 12 kinds of fruit, one for each month. And what is implied there is there is enough for all of the people of God to eat for all the years of eternity, for all the ages we'll be able to eat from this tree. God's life will be sufficient for his children forever. This is exactly what was promised to the Ephesians back in Revelation 2, verse 7. They had forgotten their first love. But if they would repent and they would remain steadfast and faithful, then there's a reward offered to them. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Verse 2 also says that the leaves of the tree are the healing for the nations. Now, that does not mean that God's people from the nations are still going to have sin wounds on the new earth that need healing. You're not going to get COVID on the new earth and have to go pluck uh, a leaf off of the tree and rub it all over yourself for healing. That's not what it's saying. Instead, this is simply a way for the Lord to communicate to us that His grace that his abiding presence will supply every member of his bride with full healing from sin and the blessing of every good thing for all of eternity. Remember back in chapter 21, verses 24 through 26, we saw what Joel Beakey calls a cosmopolitan city, a city filled with people from every nation. By its light will the nations walk, John recorded. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. And these nations will be healed forever in the presence of the healer. And as you see the tree of life, what do you not see? You do not see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you do not see a lying serpent. And you do not see... A fruit of temptation. 
Those things which we look back on make us recall our fall and the fall of Adam, the God-hating serpent. They're all gone. They're all tossed into the lake of fire. And so what we're seeing here in Revelation 22 is life with no let up. We're seeing healing with no hex. We are seeing fruit with no fall. And so we look forward to that in the future, but I want you to understand there's a sense in which we're experiencing these things now. Eternal life is not just for the future. Jesus said in John 6.47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. They have it. They possess it. And we are granted this abundant forever life upon placing our saving faith in the Lord Jesus. This is what he told the woman at the well in John 4. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The eternal life of Jesus satisfies forever, but not just in the future, it satisfies now. There's also a theological reality for the here and now having to do with the living spirit of God. In John 7, I love this scene, Jesus is at a feast. And on the last day of the feast, he stands up and he cries out. He's not talking to anybody in particular. He just stands up and he just cries out. He says, if anyone thirsts, so it's this open invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, what's he talking about? Well, John tells us. He says, now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Meaning he had not yet resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God and then poured the Spirit out on the church at Pentecost. In Ezekiel 47, you see water flowing downward. It makes the salt water fresh for the creatures. Well, I think that's a picture of how the Holy Spirit's witness flows out of the lives of believers in this age, making the dead come to life. And more than just the power in our witness, the Spirit is the down payment of eternal life that is to come, that we've been talking about tonight. Paul in Ephesians 1 says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. One day... We will not just have the Spirit on the throne of our hearts and the Spirit as the power of our witness. We will have life flowing directly to us from the throne of God and the Lamb on the new earth. And what has been a down payment for the inheritance will be fully realized. This is what Ezekiel 47 was prophesying and this is what Revelation 22 is describing to us. The river of the water of the life of God, bright as crystal, pure and undefiled, will be ours forever. For now, we experience abundant life with the taint of sin. 
a bit of our impurity mixed in with his grace, but it will not be that way in the world to come. Similarly, we may not have access to the tree of life just yet, but we do have access to the tree of Christ. We come to the place of Golgotha again and again, confessing our sins, knowing the blood of the Messiah will heal us, just as the leaves of the tree will bring healing to the nations. We come to the tree of Christ, we eat of the fruit of his flesh, we drink the wine of his blood, and we are given life and we are freed from his death. Thomas Akempis said, in the cross is health, in the cross is life, in the cross is protection from enemies, in the cross is heavenly sweetness, in the cross is strength of mind, in the cross joy of the spirit, in the cross the height of virtue, in the cross the perfection of holiness. There is no health of the soul, no hope of eternal life, save in the cross. So we wait on life for sure but we also have it now. Let's keep moving. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. We see more language that takes us back past Ezekiel's vision of a figurative temple to the literal Garden of Eden. John says as he looks at the New Jerusalem, he sees a bride city that will not have anything accursed in it. Instead of a curse which drove Adam and Eve away from God, the Lord's throne and the Lamb will be in the city and the servants of God will worship Him. And so number two tonight, the bride of Christ will have the liberation of God. There's a reversal of the curse that's happening. When Adam sinned, it uncorked a curse upon the world that has been searing and scarring humanity ever since. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But just before the announcement of this curse upon humanity, the Lord placed a curse upon the serpent and a promise regarding the destruction of the deceiver. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And what this shows us is that the key to reversing the curse was built in from the start. A serpent crusher would come from the line of Eve and he will stomp on the head of the serpent, giving it a fatal blow. In the curse, Adam's children will experience pain as they go about worshiping God through work. But in the undoing of the curse, you see in verse 3, his servants will worship him. There's no mention of pain. They can work and keep the new earth the way Adam was meant to work and keep the garden from the start. God's original purpose for his people have been recovered. Along the same lines, Adam's children were separated from God. Not born in the garden of his presence, they're born as castaways. But now, as the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, it's clear she's born again. She's born from above. And as a result, she is no longer a castaway. She is liberated from the curse. 
And the true Israel of the new Jerusalem will see the face of the maker. You see this in verse 4. They will see his face. God's people have been wanting this for as long as he has been God and they have been his people. And yet, as gracious as he is, in our fallenness, he shows himself to us. But he shows to us what the book of Job says is only the fringes. Moses was shielded from the full splendor of God's glory by the cleft of the rock in Exodus 33. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In the most holy place, in the tabernacle, in the temple, there were thick curtains that separated the people from the presence of God. And then when the high priest would go in, he wouldn't go in until the mercy seat of the ark was shrouded in smoke from the altar of incense. But on the new earth, the days of shielding and the days of shrouding are going to be over. The bride will see the face of God. The people of God will look upon the countenance of God and be liberated to see His full glory. Curse reversed, see His face, but that's not all. Not only will we be able to see His face and worship Him upon the new earth as priests, we will serve Him upon the new earth as a kingdom of priests who see His face. Look at the end of verse 5 where it says, and they will reign forever and ever. What type of people reign? Kings, right? Royalty, that's who reigns. And this reality of us being a kingdom of priests is reflected in the new song that was sung back in Revelation 5 by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. They sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Again, this is what Adam was supposed to do from the start. On the sixth day, God made Adam from the dust and gave him dominion over the creatures, and he was to rule the earth as God's vice-regent. But he failed. But like the priestly worship and the face-to-face relationship with God, the curse is being reversed and God's people are reigning with him on the earth once more. We are fully liberated to engage in God's glorious and joyful purpose for humanity. It's crystal clear who gets the privilege of doing these things. It's those who belong to God, made clear by his name being placed on their foreheads like a seal. If you remember back in Revelation 13, those who follow Satan's beast are marked on their right hand and their forehead. But here in Revelation 22, the liberated bride city is sealed on their forehead, showing they're not followers of the beast. They're not people of the beast. They belong to the lamb who is like a lion. These are the people of God by the blood of Jesus. And just as we saw the promise to the Ephesians earlier regarding the tree of life, this was promised to the Philadelphians in Revelation 3, that God's name would be written on the citizens of the city. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. 
Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. No curse, no effects of the curse. By the saving work of God and his son Jesus Christ, his people are liberated and free forever. We look forward to this in the future, but just as with the life of God, we are already experiencing the liberation of God in the here and now. The Lord Jesus has come. He has died. He has resurrected. He has ascended on high. He has received the name that is above every name. He has won the day for us. And while we're still being sanctified, we're still battling sin, we're still living in a fallen world, we are indeed free. As Paul wrote to the Galatians, urging them not to believe in false gospels, not trying to add on to the salvation that Jesus offers and make it Jesus plus works. He tells them, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You have been set free. You don't have to sin. Sin is no longer your master. Jesus is your master. Sometimes you'll hear Christians say, Oh, I know I need to stop sinning. I just can't stop. Yes, you can. You have access to the power of God. When your flesh calls, you don't have to answer because you're not enslaved to your sinful desires and impulses anymore. You're a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And so, you can actually choose not to gossip. You can choose not to get drunk. Not in the strength of your own will, but in the strength that He provides. You can choose not to slander with your tongue. You can choose not to hold grudges and be bitterly unforgiving. You can choose not to lie. You are free to walk in the righteousness of Jesus. You are free to represent His name in the world with godly behavior. We may groan with creation for the full liberation and the the full reversal of the curse that is to come, but understand that the serpent has already been disarmed. Colossians 2.15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Satan wants to point a gun at you. The blood of Christ has removed the bullets. The serpent crusher has won, even if we haven't gotten to fully lift the trophy yet. And then finally, I know it's 7.30. I've got three pages of notes left. We've gone all this way, so let's not stop now. Verse 5, we have a reprisal of what we saw in chapter 21. The bride city has no need of the light of a lamp or even the sun itself, because the Lord is their light. Again, this takes us back to Genesis 1, when God is the light to creation before he even speaks the sun into existence. And so he is the light to creation with no sun in Revelation 22. So number three, the bride of Christ has the light of God. There's not going to be any night for the new Jerusalem. We're not going to have any enemies to sneak in and threaten us. As we sleep, the light of the Lord will never go out. We won't just see the glory of God. According to Revelation 21 verse 11, we have the glory of God. 
its radiance like a most rare jewel. And that glory will be our light. City has no need of sun or moon, John writes in 21 verse 23, to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus is the light of the world. He will be ours forever and from His throne will come a flood of light by which we will see for ages and ages on the new earth. It's like the old hymn says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We should understand that just as we wait on the life of God and the liberation of God, but we have them now in part, we wait on the light of God, but it's also a spiritual reality that we now possess in part. Paul says that if people don't believe the gospel, it's because they don't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4 In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But for believers... God has spoken and he has said, let there be light. And the light of the knowledge of salvation has invaded our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4.6 For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the Prince, in the face of Jesus Christ. And where have we gotten this knowledge from? Where have we learned of the face of Jesus? It's in the Word. Right? We, we've got this book, we have the Bible, God has revealed himself to us. It's a light to our path, it is a lamp to our feet. And as we go about preaching the message of this book, showing others the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we're the light of the world. Right? We, we are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We're waiting for a, a city that is to come, but we are already a city on a hill. We are the light of the world. The already but not yet nature of this passage, I hope, encourages you tonight. It's tough out there, right? It's easy to focus on the winds. It's easy to focus on the waves of the world. Affliction. Rejection, persecution, hardship, tribulation. It's easy to take our eyes off of God and we start to sink. But we can't get caught losing track of what is already ours in Christ. It is true that the best of our works still have sin clinging to them. And we need Jesus to purify our offerings of service, our offerings of worship. It's true that... With our faith, there's a little unbelief mixed in. With our zealousness for Jesus, there's some lukewarmness mixed in. With our humility, there's still that pride that is mixed in. Thomas Watson said, we're like a pair of bad lungs with asthma. Since corruption, it has infected our hearts so that our graces breathe faintly. And yet, old Watson reminds us, though grace cannot make sin not to be, Yet it makes it not to rain. Though grace cannot expel sin, it can repel it. And for our comfort, where grace makes a combat with sin, death shall make a conquest. There's a day coming when grace is fully going to win. Full life, full liberation, full light. 
But I understand that these things are yours now. Don't be fooled into living below your spiritual income. You are the bride of Christ. Walk in victory now as a double conqueror, knowing it's coming in full later. Father, we thank you for these things that we have learned tonight from your word. We thank you for everything we've learned in Revelation. What a joy it's been. One more week left, not done yet, Lord. We look forward next week to the epilogue of this glorious book. Could never be the product of a man. All this richness that we've seen in it tonight, all of the, the, the anchor lines where we pick up the rope, we, we track it back, and oh, there's an anchor dropped in Ezekiel, and there's an anchor dropped in Genesis, and an anchor dropped in the Psalms. It just shows us, God, this is a product of you. But you've revealed yourself to us in the word, and you've also revealed to us who we are in the word now that we know you by grace, and so I pray tonight, God, that we remember our identity as the bride of Christ. If there's people in this room, Lord, who have been walking in defeat, sin's been eating them up, I pray tonight they would repent and realize they don't have to live that way. They don't have to live as if they're enslaved to sin. If they belong to you, they're not. They're your bondservant. If people have been eaten up by, maybe it's not disobedience, maybe it's just despair, that they would look to what is to come in the future and what we possess now as Christians and they would remember that they've got a thousand reasons for joy. A thousand reasons to rejoice even in the midst of suffering. I pray God if there's believers in this room who have been struggling with doubts that the truth of your word tonight chase those doubts away and that they would realize that this book is not the product of man, that they would look back in their life and see all the ways that you have worked and realize that they've seen you prove yourself over and over. And they'd remember who they are tonight, the bride of Jesus. It's real. And it's real now. And it's going to be really real later. So help us, Lord, to hold on to these truths tonight. Drive away doubt. Drive away despair. Drive away disobedience. Thank you for making us your bride. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.